This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. This week, will Putin invade Ukraine? Plus, is Brexit working? And finally, what is the allure of a classified advert? First up, For this week's cover story, Owen Matthews argues that if Putin is going to invade Ukraine, he will do so later rather than sooner. He joins us now, along with Julius Strauss, who reports on the mood in Odessa for this week's magazine. Julius, thank you very much for joining us on the edition. So you're calling us now from Kiev, but you write in the magazine this week about Odessa, where you were before. Um, I'd like to start by asking, from speaking to people there in Odessa and now in Kiev... Do you get the sense that they consider invasion probable? Oh, gosh. Difficult question. Uh, It depends who you talk to. I think most people consider invasion probable at some point because they've seen Russia sort of turn up uh, the temperature and then turn it down and turn it up again and turn it down. They're not quite sure that this is the point. They're not quite sure about when. So unlike Western analysts who all seem to think, or the popular thing is that it's going to happen sometime in February. The Ukrainians are far less certain about that. And it depends who you talk to. And there's all kinds of different reactions. Some people are totally fatalistic. There's a general sense of fear, but it's not something you see a lot of unless you start talking to people on the streets. Oh, and you write this week's cover story and you, and you talk about this phony war and you say it suits both Boris and Putin to pretend that Russia may invade Ukraine. Do you think it's unlikely that we're going to see a Russian invasion? Uh, well, in a word, the, the, the point of my piece is uh, not that it's never going to happen, but we've got a, a tremendous amount of road to run through before I think it could happen. And it will only happen if Putin really finds his back to the wall and runs absolutely out of options. Because I think he knows very clearly that it's going to be completely different from Crimea in 2014. I mean, this time round, he's really risking devastating economic consequences for invading Ukraine. And my other point is really, if he wants to invade Ukraine, he's got a lot of preparation to do on the home front, and he's not really doing it. In other words, I mean, the polling shows that a lot of Russians, especially young Russians, 66% of of under 24-year-old Russians, who are, after all, the people who are going to be fighting this war, 66% of them are positive or very positive about Ukraine. So if the idea is to prepare a land invasion of Ukraine, however limited, that's going to require a gigantic sell to the Russian people to make it plausible. And we're not seeing that. And that's really the key data point. And um, more importantly, I think what we're or rather, just as interestingly, what we see is the Ukrainian government downplaying it as well. I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky on Friday said that, you know, nothing has really changed. This is the situation on the ground has not worsened for in the last year. He doesn't really, he's not alarmed either. The people who are alarmed are Western analysts and particularly, apparently, Boris Johnson and the Foreign Office. And uh, I suspect that actually they're harping on about this, or certainly in Johnson's case, simply because they have their own party gate crisis to have, have uh, to distract from. And that's particularly true of a Foreign Office 
memorandum that came out on Saturday saying that they have information that the Russians are planning to overthrow the government in Kiev and have selected people who they believe will join their quizzling government. Well, I'm sure it's true. I think that's what Russians do all the time. I'm sure there's literally a department of the FSB, which is whose job description is overthrow the Kiev government. They do that all the time. So I think it is rather suspicious that suddenly they come up with this very, very implausible plot, naming some very marginal political figures and splash on that on the very beginning of a week when Boris Johnson's premiership may come to an ignominious end. And Julius, do you agree with Owen's analysis there about what the Ukrainian authorities are saying? Uh, Do you get a sense from from being in, in Kiev right now that they are preparing the population for an invasion or are they downplaying the, the threat of it? They're definitely downplaying it. The question as to why is a little more complex perhaps than the fact that they don't think it's going to happen. I don't really think they have much choice. They can't afford to jump every time Putin says boo because they almost become a sort of a victim of their own process. So I think they're downplaying it for a number of reasons. One is that they don't want to create panic. Panic is not going to serve anybody at all. But also, they don't want to feel that they're being held hostage to every sort of little uh, manoeuvre within this crisis or every little change within this crisis. So you get the sense that they're downplaying it almost on purpose. They're trying to keep the lid on things. In fact, some people have turned around and said, hang on a minute, why are we being so relaxed about this if the threat is so real? So I don't think it necessarily means the threat is less real. I think it's a a decision that the the Zelensky government has made to treat this crisis in this particular way, which is not to say that I disagree with Owen necessarily, but it's a bit difficult to discern the motives here. And you say in your piece that Putin doesn't want any more sanctions, but do, I mean, do you think the US or even the UK would actually enforce any sanctions were Russia to try something in Ukraine? Yeah, they definitely would. I mean, they've made it very clear. But the the, the point of my piece, and uh, by the way, Julius's um, letter is, is excellent, and I always trust the man on the ground in, in Ukraine. But I was in Moscow last week, which is what, why I'm following the, the media um, in Moscow for the last month. So that's uh, that's how I, I know about uh, the messaging. But to the, to the point about Putin, I mean, you know, don't trust anybody who tells you what Putin thinks. Nobody really knows what Putin thinks. But there are certain things that are very clear from what he said and from his past behaviour. Right now, his messaging is really simple. He's not made any threats to Ukraine. He's not made any demands of Kiev. So in that sense, actually, it's very different, fundamentally different from what happened in 2014. It was all about Kiev. This time round, his message is directed to NATO. And his message is really clear. He's been banging this drum for 20 years. And Yeltsin before him that, you know, NATO expansion must stop. There is a red line. You may not deploy NATO heavy weaponry in Ukraine. That's his red line. That's his point. So in this sense, actually, Kiev, I think, is something of a bystander in this process, is the message is really directed to Joe Biden, is directed to Berlin, is uh, directed to, uh, to Paris, the most sceptical members of the EU about expansion and about engagement between Ukraine and uh, NATO. And most importantly, I think there's no scenario, there's no invasion scenario that gets him what he wants. And what he wants is for the Ukraine to be friendly and neutral, that's what he wants. And um, to your question, will the West impose sanctions if he invades? Yeah, they most definitely will impose sanctions if he invades. That part has unified NATO. 
the part that Putin's interested in is engagement with Ukraine. And there, just moving around heavy metal inside his own country has already achieved a very important goal, and that is to show NATO disunity. I mean, already the head of the German Navy resigned on Friday uh, after he said that Putin, it's easy to give Putin respect and he probably deserves it. So very clearly, he's already put the cat among the pigeons by basically doing nothing except just staging military manoeuvres. But he's already demonstrated that there's very deep rifts in NATO about the wisdom of further engagement with Ukraine. I'd like to just uh, bring up one point you mentioned there, Owen, uh, regarding the, how different the situation is now to Crimea in 2014. And I want to ask, uh, in terms of the you mentioned it in terms of the Russian messaging, but I want to ask Julius regarding comparisons to 2014, uh, whether you think the Ukrainian view is different from from the situation as it was then. Yes, I think it's moved quite a lot. Um, I wasn't here in 2014. I was here earlier for the earlier revolution in 2004. And I was here in 2017. And obviously, I'm here now. The things have shifted a lot. Whereas before in Ukraine, you got a very strong sense of sort of multiple identities, multiple language, people who were not necessarily defined by their country or their nationality and certainly not their language. Now things are hardening. So even people I spoke to in Odessa, Odessa is pretty much a Russian-speaking town. They have become much more anti-Russia, anti-Putin, not necessarily anti-Russian, and they make a big difference between the two, but anti-Putin. So in a way, I think the danger is if Putin's aim is to keep Ukraine close, the danger is this is going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. By doing what he's doing, he's actually going to force Ukraine away from Russia, at least in the eyes of the of the, the people who live here. Now, of course, you're going to get some variation across the country from west to east. And the, the further east you get, especially if you get into the separatist areas, you're going to get some very pro-Russian sentiment. But that's the general picture. No, and just to finish on, you say in your piece that the phony war suits everyone and that you can imagine Johnson soon claiming victory against Russian aggression and, and Putin sort of claiming the same thing. Do you think that's the kind of the most likely outcome from all of this? Uh, yeah, I think it is the most likely outcome um, because initially everyone in the West who's talk tough is going to claim victory. Putin has actually got a lot more options, a lot more in his arsenal than invading Ukraine. I mean, I, I, the, the surprising thing about this... Uh, uh, sort of collective insistence that his only move is is invading Ukraine, I think has ignored a huge smuggers board of asymmetric responses. And in fact, the, the Ukrainian government itself has actually talked about asymmetric responses being uh, more likely than an actual military invasion. The most obvious one, um, I mean, let's, you know, let, let, let's, let's count the great favourites. I mean, it's cyber attacks. Uh, he's been talking about deploying Russian... Uh, military, or Lavrov, the foreign minister, said he couldn't rule out deploying the Russian military in Venezuela and Cuba. That worked out very well for Nikita Khrushchev in 1962. They actually have a tremendous amount of open-ended treaties that need to be renegotiated, strategic arms treaties that need to be negotiated. And actually, crucially, this stuff sounds incredibly boring, but actually it's the nuts and bolts of the, so the architecture of of stability and peace is the Con Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, which hasn't been negotiated for 30 years. Conventional Forces in Europe just used to raise a Cold War relic that used to regulate the movement of heavy weaponry through 
sort of uh, the, the border zones between the Soviet Union and 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 uh, and, and the uh, and NATO. Now, I mean that's also can be renegotiated. It's another sort of gigantic area for talks. Macron has already talked about the uh, reviving a EU-Russia summit. Biden has agreed to talks. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of road that Putin can still travel. But in order to travel it, he has to create some kind of leverage. And there's basically no leverage that Russia has today. It doesn't have very strong economic leverage over anything except for one thing, which is gas and energy. But you know, that's shutting that off or threatening that is actually sort of cutting off the branch on which he sits. So his only kind of real way of projecting power is either military or illegal. In other words, rattling his sabre or doing cyber attacks. And right now he's actually really got already quite far by rattling the sabre. He's already got everyone's attention and he's going to try and keep it. And the minute he actually invades, then he loses everything. That's why I strongly believe that invasion is his very much his worst option and will not actually be a reality until it becomes his last option. Thank you, Owen and Julius. Next up, this week marks the two-year anniversary of Brexit. But how successful has it been? Joining us now is Lord Frost, who was Chief Negotiator of Task Force Europe from January 2020 until his resignation in December last year, and the journalist Ed West, who runs the substack Wrong Side of History. Lord Frost, in The Spectator this week, Ross Clark calls Brexit the abandoned revolution. He says that not much has changed uh, in the country since we left the European Union, and he concludes by saying... Fewer Eastern Europeans and no tampon tax doesn't seem quite enough to justify the whole agonising business. What did you make of Ross's argument? Well, I sort of sympathise in that I don't think we've got going fast enough on all the things that we need to do. I think he probably overstates it slightly, to to be honest. I think there's a little bit more to the government's credit than than he gives. Things like the ARIA research agency, for example, is is a big new thing of you know part of being science superpower. But but there's no doubt, as I suggested when I left government, that we you know have some concerns about the direction of travel and we're not getting on with things as quickly as we should be. So in terms of that direction of travel then, what do you see as as being the key points which is going in the wrong direction? So I think there are two things really. You know, we know all history tells us, I think, that democratic nation states are the best way of of organizing life and political debate and making things happen. So we need to rebuild our own nation state after 50 years of EU membership and we need to boost our own prosperity and and wealth and so we need to do things that rebuild the nation and get us going on economic reform on change on boosting wealth uh, on increasing growth in a way that we we haven't so far so you know i would say we should certainly not be increasing taxes for example we should be cutting them we should be continuing the super deduction for for capital allowances that sort of thing we should also stop doing some other stuff that we don't need to do, you know, banning foie gras uh, or or whatever. Legislative time for a government is very precious, and I don't think one should waste it on on side issues. So those are some of the things that, you know, we should definitely not be doing, and there are certainly things we should be doing. Ed, in December 2020, you wrote a piece for Unheard in which you said that whilst you were once a fervent Eurosceptic, you had come to believe that leaving was in fact a terrible blunder. 
just over a year on. Do you still feel that way? Uh, well, I change my mind about this every 15 minutes pretty much. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was, one of the f- I was very early quite in the two minds about it. I remember a speech about three weeks before the actual results. But there was an event for Leave supporters at Millbank Tower and Boris was the lead speaker and he gave this talk about sort of the city of London resurrecting the city and we you know what after Brexit was done you know this would be a further renaissance of this great globalized city and I remember the time thinking this is this is really the opposite of what a lot of leave voters want they want to put the brakes on globalization they don't want accelerated globalization I thought there was such a contradiction between what a lot of leavers want after leaving the EU it would um, end in tears I mean in particular I mean, Ross does mention this in the article, the immigration was a huge part of it and it was such a massive issue that people felt, and I think correctly, that their wages were being driven down by the sheer amount of migration since 1997. And, you know, we didn't even know how many migrants there were in the EU, far more than we actually, we thought we had, which just shows, I mean, how disastrous it was. And if that is not going to be reduced in the next years, then I think, you know, the huge costs of Brexit are going to be really not worth it at all. I mean, especially the latest ONS figures suggest that, you know, migration is still going to be at sort of 200,000. I mean, obviously COVID has put a sort of span in the works, but I, I suspect it will be back to... And, and if you just substitute migration from Poland or Romania for a migration from India or other places, then, uh, I mean, that's, to me, that seems an absurd reason to go through all the hassle of leaving the EU. So I, I think people connect things that that shouldn't be connected i don't see why if you believe in britain as a country and you want to control immigration i agree with you on the numbers there i don't see why if you want to do those things that necessarily makes you a statist and a socialist and and similarly why if you're a globalist and believe in free markets and global investment that necessarily means you must be against brexit and these things get sort of linked i think in a way that's not really justifiable i i I think the the um the proposition that our voters got behind in December 2019 was uh, rebuild the nation state and make it prosperous again. And making it prosperous means free markets and liberal market economics. I mean, one of my crank beliefs among many is that I think it could be possible that left and right like, realign on Europe because there's no reason why being... I mean, I can see already a lot of social liberals are thinking, well, actually, Brexit is sort of delivering the sort of society we want. While if you're a Brexit voter, you might actually have more kind of, you know, like UKIP spotters do have kind of basically social democratic views on the economy, much more in line with Germany or France than with the United States. Hmm. So it's possible, like, you know, Brexit can be a socially liberal internationally thing. And, and I think that's what a lot of Brexit voters don't want. Lord Frost, how, how much do you think the pandemic has limited what we've been able to do with Brexit? It obviously has limited things a bit. It's taken a huge amount, rightly, of internal government attention, ministerial time, uh, and so on. And and so it should have. I don't think, on its own, it necessarily would have stopped us, um, you know, doing the right things economically. I don't buy the connection between. Uh, dealing with the pandemic and tax rises, for example, I think the right thing is to take those costs onto debt and focus on keeping taxes low and and, and growing the economy. And I, I, I think it would still have been possible to push forward some things like the procurement bill, which seems to have got held up in the background 
uh, while this was was going on. So obviously, it's been a very significant difficulty and problem for the government and for the country. But I still don't think it would have, it stops the direct setting the right direction of travel. And Lord Frost, in Ross's piece, he also says that the most damaging thing, aside from a, a lack of action as he sees it, is that the Prime Minister hasn't even really signalled his future intentions with newfound Brexit freedoms. Do you, do you think that's a fair assessment? I think only up to a point. I think actually the Prime Minister has been very good in setting a, a vision for how he wants the country to be and I think it's one that a lot of people can get behind it's just that we haven't willed the means that take us to to that end and a lot of I mean government is about making choices and you need a philosophy that enables you to choose one thing rather than another to get to the objective you want to to get to and I think that's that's where when I talk about concerns about the direction of travel it's not so much the, the ultimate goal is do I believe we're going to get there with the things we're currently doing and no, I'm a bit doubtful. Ed, there was an interesting point in your piece, which was that you thought that the, the antagonism of Brexit was, was not actually necessarily towards other Europeans, but towards the British people. Do you think that that is starting to subside? Do you think there's a kind of slightly more peaceful moment now, or is it, is it still quite I mean, touchy? Uh, I think there's, I think I read the other day that remain and leave identities amongst people are still quite strong, stronger than political identification. So I, I think those tribes will still exist but the, I mean to some extent those political tribes have basically become you know the Conservative and the Labour Party so there had been a Brexit accelerated the sort of realignment in politics which was going to happen anyway but now it's happened more clearly I mean the problem Boris Johnson seems to have now he's alienating many of his new voters but you know they've basically lost a huge swathe of the sort of public especially the younger voters who I think will never vote for them because of Brexit I mean I think also I mean a lot referring to the previous question a lot of the problem is that because Brexit is so still such a sort of new idea it's going to be shaped by the personalities of whoever basically starts it and and Boris Johnson doesn't really have like a vision in that sense I mean I think I sort of know what Boris Johnson believes in but he doesn't have this kind of like vision of sort of nation building which is almost what I mean we could I mean and it could have actually been Jeremy Corbyn I mean his Brexit he would have had the freedom to sort of shape Brexit as he liked, which I'm sure not many of us would have been too happy about. So I think it might depend on who comes after Boris Johnson and, you know, if there is someone who has more of a sort of vision of what he wants. In terms of then a, a vision for the future, Lord Frost, we're, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon and this morning you retweeted Alistair Heath's Telegraph column and agreed with the statement that the government needs to get rid of the uh, neo-socialists, green fanatics and pro-woke crowd. Who are they? <laughs> I thought you might ask me that. Uh, <laughs> I think the answer is they know who they are. <laughs> um, um, I, I do think it's important that the team around the Prime Minister share the objectives of the people who elected the government. And um, I'm not always convinced that's that's always been the case. I don't want to kind of you know sort of um exaggerated but but i do think it's important that people understand what drove the election result and stay in touch with the country and and the voters and um i'm not sure we've always done that and i think it's really important 
Uh, just to finish on, you you made the point that Westminster politicians had often used the EU as an excuse to avoid doing things that they didn't really want to. Do you think what we're seeing now is British politicians getting used to having to sort of take more responsibility for their own decisions? Um, well, I should hope so. I mean, unfortunately, the this you know the C word has sort of slightly put a spanner in the works. Until now, there hasn't. I mean, there are there are certain things that Europe stopped a Conservative government doing. If he wants to reform, I mean, you know, the, the, the Conservatives always have the problem that basically the system, the people who run the system are against them. Or there's that perception, you know, it's called the blob or whatever. And then that prevents them sort of, you know, fully implementing Conservative, like a social policy. But not all of that was to Europe. And then there's lots of stuff they could, um, they could sort of, you know, take responsibility for themselves. Uh, I have to be honest, I've sort of yet to see an example of them sort of doing that. But I mean, maybe I'm just... No, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think one of the effects of being in the EU 50 years is that it's it sort of sapped a bit of the national will to get things done, even in areas which were not EU competence, right. where we could always have done things ourselves. We've, we've kind of looked to others to help solve the problem rather than getting on with it. Do you think it also means that people who want, who want to run the world don't go into the sort of British institutions because they think... They, you know, nothing really gets done. The place to go is... In- I think that has been more an effect elsewhere in Europe right. than here. It was a bit of an effect here, I think, as people saw which way the wind was blowing a bit in the last 10 years or so, the people focused back, back down on the UK. And I do think it is really important that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time debating the economics of Brexit and and still do but for me fundamentally it's about democracy it's about you know it being a good thing for a country that it can decide itself things for itself and its own institutions and argue them out and come to decisions that people can live with and if you outsource your decision making you don't get that and in the end it's bad for the national life and I, I think it's really good that we're coming back to some really tough and difficult arguments about philosophy and where we we want to go as a country that's that's right that's politics and that's people like me have got to win those arguments now lord frost and ed thank you very much indeed and finally in the age of google classified adverts have become something of a rarity in this week's magazine anthony whitehead explores the history influence and appeal of back page ads he joins us along with lawrence bernstein who has been running a classified ad in the back pages of The Spectator for years. Anthony, in this week's Spectator, you write about your interest in classified ads. What exactly is it that you love about them? Well, they're so personal. Advertising, which you come across on a day-to-day basis, is often created by an agency, probably by a committee inside an agency in a city. And they tend to be uh, rather predictable, and they don't give you a, a window into somebody else's life in the way that a personal ad does. Even if they're just selling something, you can quite often glean something about the kind of person they are and the sort of life they lead. It's, it's just the way that you can see other people and how they live sometimes in, in, a, in quite a sort of unique way. And, and what do you think you've gleaned from the classifieds in The Spectator, for instance? That um, most people who advertise in The Spectator expect me to be perhaps richer and more sophisticated than I am. <laughs> Uh, my the sort of champagne smoked salmon lifestyle is uh, tempting and uh, 
I'm sure. Well, as I say in the article, we, we dream, don't we? And advertising works on aspirations. So I'm quite interested when I see the ads in The Spectator and they, they say, well, you'll be interested in this, that and the other. And I think, will I? You know, does that, does that, am I that sort of person? And Lawrence, you're one of the people who place classified ads in The Spectator for your company, Great Speech Writing. May I ask, why do you choose to advertise in The Spectator? Do you know what? It, my, I don't only advertise in it. I can partly thank it for my having a business at all. I had a completely different career, wanted to shake things around, fancied trying my hand at writing stuff for myself and for private clients rather than doing it as part of a job. And didn't know where to, this was back in 2005, and I didn't know where to start. And so thought, well, where are you likely to meet like-minded, intelligent people who wouldn't be ashamed to have a chat about improving the way that they communicate? And stuck in that, I, only, I actually have to be honest, I put two ads in. One was at the back of Private Eye, and one was at the back of The Spectator. And had I not received a positive response to the one in The Spectator, back then, the business would have faltered in week two. So <laughs> I, cho- I chose it on a bit of a whim with a little bit of a, a sense that it might be a good idea. And literally in 16 years, I have only changed the text in that ad twice. I think Anthony pointed out in the article that one of those actually caused so much angst that uh, we received a phone call which generally when the phone goes and somebody says, I've seen you in The Spectator, then you're very happy because it means you've got someone who might want some help with a piece of work. And we were asked why we had changed the wording in our advertisement and was everything all right? (laughs) (laughs) So absolutely there is a sense of the personal and the relationship and a deep, deep sense of something that is very unlike Google and is is not run by an algorithm. Well, would you like to reveal for Anthony and and perhaps for um, some of our readers and listeners as well, why you did change change the wording since it it, it clearly perturbed Anthony and it's perturbed (laughs) some of our other other readers? Three, three, change twice. The first time it had always been relax, I'll write it for you because I was a bloke working from his basement, setting up a business and everything was about me getting to know you. I can't quite remember when it was that I was fortunate enough to be able to employ some help and the phone would go from potential clients at 11 o'clock at night and three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and eventually I did need to take a break from answering it. But if a colleague answered it and they were asked for Lawrence and they said he wasn't available, the phone would often go dead. Again, simply because of the longevity of the ad, it's bizarre. They didn't know what I looked like or sounded like or if I had any sort of ability at all. So we changed it to we on the basis that that may allow others in. And we didn't change it again until the beginning of lockdown, where, as you can imagine, events stopped. As you know, events stopped. Speeches pretty much went either onto Zoom or into abeyance. And we had to start selling something else for a while, which is some of the other stuff we do. But as you've seen, the moment that we had the chance, we've gone back to the old relax, we'll write write it for you. And that's where I hope we are today. Well, Anthony, we've obviously managed to track down Mr. Relax. You also mentioned in your piece Nina, the enigmatic Nina, who we we sadly weren't able to track down. But can you tell us a bit about how you imagine Nina and in her flat in Paddington? Well, first of all, I'm very relieved that uh, everything was okay with Lawrence uh, because I'd <laughs> imagined um, you know all kinds of disastrous scenarios. Uh, one of which was that his 
his colleague had badgered him for years saying, you know, do I not count in this uh, partnership? It's got to be we, surely. And uh, eventually, after typewriters flying and speeches burning, he relented and (laughs) put it onto we. And I'm also relieved that I'm not the only person who has got rather involved in this ad in the way that you do with long-standing ads. And as for, for Nina, who advertised her, her therapy in The Spectator for many months, I shall have to be careful what I say, obviously, because she was quite vague about the services that she offered. And because it was vague, you could imagine anything you liked. And I think classifieds have always had potentially a, a slightly sleazy edge to them, or can do, and they, they provide a, a window into a world which you might not ordinary find ordinarily find yourself so I imagined her very beautiful obviously oh about 40 brunette large kind eyes this kind of thing I could go on but I'd probably better not (laughs) (laughs) and Lawrence you were speaking about um over the years the sort of personal relationship that you've you formed with with spectator readers I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that I mean how have you how have you found that the readers who come to your business via the spectator as opposed to other magazines that you might advertise with? I'd hate to sound like a sycophant. <laughs> oh, no, do. <laughs> but there is, when the phone goes, we, we, we advertise, as you can imagine, elsewhere, and we come, you know, we've been around a while now, so we have all sorts of, sort of ways of, of, of coming into the public consciousness. When someone calls and says, hey, I know you from The Spectator, it is like we are members of the same club. They are always, well, first, but most importantly, we know they won't run off without paying. <laughs> Second of all, they know they're not going to ask for a freebie. Third of all, they tend to have, they may have different interests, but they tend to have a very similar view of life. And you just know generally that the thing will develop from a transactional start to a relationship into something that is more two-way and long-term. And I can honestly say back, people who I first met through The Spectator in 2005, because you know, when you start a new business, you remember every client personally. There are some who we are still dealing with. We're very lucky to have changed from, we used to just offer speeches, now we do all sorts of stuff. We do personal branding and content online and all sorts of copywriting. But actually, it's those long-term speech clients from, from the spectator and private eye who call us. We, we follow them through their lives. And they may have got in touch about a wedding speech. And then suddenly they turn from being the groom to being the parent, the father of the bride, they sadly speak at funerals and we go along a, a life cycle. We're on, we've got one reader whose name obviously won't be mentioned, who we've now written three groom speeches at different weddings for the same gentleman. And we have written a eulogy for a spectator reader who is still alive, but asked us to write it for him because he'd like to give it to the appropriate reader before the time came. So, you know, I, obviously the, the, everything we do is sort of clothed in a degree of discretion. But there is something very lovely about being part of it, even you know, even though it is just what however many twenty words at the back of a of a magazine. And Anthony Lawrence just mentioned Private Eye. Obviously, Private Eye is also very well known for its classified adverts. How do you think they differ from the Spectator's ads? Well, they're a little bit more outre, a bit edgier, aren't they? And I don't think the Spectator has those ads that just say. I need cash, here's my bank account number. Do you kind think of speciality of I always eye. look at those adverts and wonder, <laughs> so, you know, do people actually you know, transfer money to those bank accounts? Do you, do you think they do work? 
I've not the faintest idea. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know whether I don't know whether the ones that just say I need cash are any more successful than the ones that say I'm a single mother with five children living in the gutter and, you know, terrible things are going to happen if I don't get lots of money very quickly. I've, I've no idea which is the more successful, really. I, th- I think probably if you've got humour in your ad somewhere, it's going to help with your responses. Have you ever been tempted to post a classified yourself? Not an interesting one. Uh, I've, I've, pl- I've, pl- I've placed the odd... I suppose I was first introduced to classifieds when our family dog used to go missing and my father used to put a, a lost and found advert for the dog and uh, remarkably people used to find the dog and bring it back and I suppose this was my first impression of the reach of classifieds that they could actually reach out into the world at large into the, the big city and and find the person that you needed whether it was to sell your secondhand sofa or to find your dog or whatever it was and in many ways they were the precursor of the internet if you if you remember exchange and mart when it was published as a paper that was just thousands upon thousands uh, a, a precursor to loot of, of ads and you could buy absolutely anything from steel shelves to lingerie to a tortoise to a ford escort absolutely anything and so it was the internet of its day really and lawrence we thought it would only be appropriate really to finish with giving you the opportunity to do an audio advert if, if you'd like on on the podcast <laughs> Well, relax, we'll write it for you. And we're happy to talk about Rod Little. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 there aren't aren't many places you can say that. Yes, that's true. And without wishing to sound like an applicant for Head of Classified at the Spectator, uh, I would say that over the years it has been proved without doubt that although you can get quantity by advertising online, you get quality by advertising regularly in The Spectator. And I am hugely grateful, I, I think, for every single contact I've ever made through through the magazine. Thank you very much again. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you, Lawrence. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read all the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.